What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical bill expert, finding savings can seem impossible. Well, HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. So start saving with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, I believe I can fly. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Joe McCormick and our other host, Lauren Vogelbaum, is not with us today, but she will be back next time. Yep. So today we're going to be answering a listener request. Wait, whoa, what? Hey, we've got listeners and they request things. They often request things. We, we often, Some of the things they request are impossible to talk about. Right. Well, but we do get, uh, we, you know, we, we ask people at the end of every single episode, if you have suggestions, send them in. And some folks do. And this is one of them. We're going to talk about a listener request. Right. So this listener request is from someone calling himself or herself Rue. All right. It says, Hey guys, I've been thinking hard on what I'd like to hear as a podcast from you guys, and finally it flew in like Boba Fett. Jetpacks. I think it would be interesting to hear if we ever will get to jetpacks and what they will look like, as well as the jetpacks, and that's in quotes, the jetpacks we have now. Thanks, your faithful listener, the lightsaber-wielding hobbit, Rue. It's a lot of mythology going on with Rue. I, I, dig I like it. it. Yeah, no, I totally I like dig the cross pollination. So, yeah, we wanted to really take a look at this. We figured this would be a fun one. Uh, one of the many things we talk about whenever there's a discussion about the future, someone inevitably says, "Where's my flying car?" or "Where's my jetpack?" Those two things, I think, end up representing kind of our concept of what the future should have incorporated into it more than anything else. Yeah, well, jetpacks show up in a lot of media, of course, yeah. and we can talk about those in a minute. But 
I wanted to start with sort of the idea of jetpacks before we get to the reality of sure. jetpacks. When you imagine the sci-fi jetpack, the thing people are asking for when they say, where's my jetpack, where's my jetpack, where's my jetpack? Right. What is it? It's sort of a device that makes you a hummingbird. Sure. It's limitless, fully controllable personal flight. So you can zip through the air to your destination at rapid speeds. You can take off and land wherever and whenever you want. You can hover in place if you need to. You can make a quick getaway if you need to. It's just total personal freedom of movement. Right. And beyond that, it's it's as close as we would be able to get to flying like a superhero as possible, right? There's no, we wouldn't have a vehicle around us. There's no plane or car around us. It is you experiencing that incredible thrill of flying. And it's one of those things that a lot of people have that desire, right? The desire to feel as if they are flying through the air. And this, I mean, that's the superpower I would go with if I couldn't have my other one, which is essentially Total time control. But, uh, yeah, I, I'd, I'd want to fly through the air like well, that. Well, as we've discussed before, I would choose teleportation because proper teleportation can recreate the effects of flight and many other things besides. Well, sure. But, see, to me, it's not just the destination. It's the journey. How romantic. Well, okay, we know that rockets slash jets exist today. That's true. We have plenty of them. We know how to make them. There are some really smart people who are good at designing them to do very specific things. And, of course, backpacks exist. So one plus one (laughs) should equal two. In theory, you should be able to combine them, and it should be super easy to create something like a jetpack. So where are they? Why don't we have them? What's the holdup? So the best way I thought to look into this is to kind of lay out some rules and kind of define some terms, because we're going to use the word jetpack a lot in this episode. But a lot of the things we're going to be talking about are not technically jets. They are rockets. And there is a difference. I knew you'd bring some annoying technicality into this. It's important because there are jetpacks that are jetpacks that are jet engines that are strapped to a person. (laughs) Let's pursue the truth to the fullest extent. Well, what is a jet? Okay, so a jet is an engine that takes in air, uses a turbine to compress the air, and then pushes that compressed air mixture out and mixes it with fuel, and then it combusts the fuel. Uh, So they require oxygen to work. That oxygen comes from that air intake at the beginning. So a, a pure jet engine would not work in outer space because you wouldn't have the uh, the oxidizer to mix with the fuel to allow it to combust. Right. It's sort of like, I don't know, sort of part rocket, part vacuum cleaner. <laughs> it All thrust. Uh, <laughs> so rockets carry both the fuel and the oxidizer, the oxidizing agent together, whatever that might be. Right. That's why they can burn in deep space. They don't need external oxygen right. in order to work because you still or atmosphere of any kind. Right. You still need you still need some sort of oxidizer in order to combust that's one of those things that you know you need heat a an oxidizer and a fuel in order for you to create any sort of fire or burn something but if you pack the oxidizer with you then you don't have to pull it in from the surrounding environment so rockets uh, end up having that as one of the components on them both of them work by creating thrust yes uh, so there are some jetpacks that are actually jetpacks that are jets. For example, um, uh, Eves Rossi, he was the guy who had the fixed wing jetpack. Uh, he jumped out of like a hot air balloon and flew for an incredibly long time. We'll talk about him again a little bit later in the episode. But his is actually a wingsuit that has jet engines on it. So it is a jetpack. I think that's super ironic because I've seen people online referring to him as, quote, Rocket Man. Yeah, apparently we can't get the the nomenclature right. So people <laughs> wearing rocket belts are wearing jetpacks. Right. And people using jets are rocket men. Yeah. Well, you know, we're silly people, I guess. So now that we've laid out some terminology, let's look at some instances of jetpacks in pop culture. Some of the things that have really promoted this idea of personal transport that allows us to fly wherever we want. And there are a lot of examples we could point to. One is one that Rue mentioned. Right. Boba Fett. Yeah. Now, I have it in the notes, but did you did you already know where Boba Fett first appeared? Oh, of in the Star course Wars I did. Are you really asking me? The Star Wars holiday special. Yeah. Now, 
right now we're in the holiday season. Here. Yes, as we record. And you might not know this about me, but if you happen to see me out somewhere and you wish me happy holidays, whether you know it or not, the holiday you're referring to is Life Day. <laughs> the day celebrated by the Wookiees in the Star Wars Holiday Special. Have you actually watched the Star Wars Holiday Special? I've watched it like six or seven times. Wow. Yeah. I've sat through all of the interminable it, sketches. It's a two-hour-long variety show in the worked in the context of a Wookiee family drama unfolding, <laughs> and, and without any subtitles. Um, I, I find the Wookiee Life Day quite inspiring. Anyway, in an animated segment on this holiday special variety show, yeah. there was the first appearance of Boba Fett, who was the bounty hunter we all know and love now, wearing the cool Mandalorian armor, mm-hmm. sporting the the weird gadget kind of weapons. He was almost kind of like a an outer space James Bond. He had lots of little strange gadgets on him. Yeah, he rode in on a big old dinosaur-like thing, too. So, yeah. you know, it's it, you couldn't have gone for a more dramatic entrance. Now, of course, most people are familiar with, with Boba Fett from the appearances in the other movies, specifically Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, uh, retconned into Star Wars. Um, and uh, then you have Jango Fett in the Clone Wars. Uh, but at any rate, that jetpack was put to good use in Return of the Jedi and bad use as well, because it was pretty much what ended up having him get uh, swallowed by the Sarlacc. Yeah, they're having a big fight on Jabba the Hutt's barge, and I think he uses it to try to jump from one ship to the other, ends up falling down in the pit. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen Return of the Jedi. As I recall, Han Solo is holding a uh, a long polearm, and he hears from Chewbacca the words Boba Fett. He says, Boba Fett? Boba Fett where? And he turns, and Three Stooges like hits Boba Fett's jetpack uh, <laughs> controls, forcing him to fly into the Sarlacc pit. Yeah, and I think this is interesting because, surprisingly, Boba Fett's jetpack depiction in Return of the Jedi is fairly realistic because it only works in a short burst and it's apparently hard to control. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll get uh, into more of that too. Yeah. So another famous appearance of a jetpack in pop culture is in James Bond. I loved this one when I was a kid Thunderball. and still kind of love it now because of how ridiculous and pointless it is. Like he could have just. There's a scene where Sean Connery has just had, a, I think, a sword fight with somebody. He's just killed. It, this is a pre-credit sequence, so it's the it's the the mission that James Bond was on before the one you're actually interested in, and he kills the bad guy, and the henchmen come running, and so he makes uh he tries to make his escape from like a giant manor. Right, and he uses a jetpack. Yeah, you he, don't see him putting it on. He no, just kind of suddenly has it on yeah, and then he, he launches. Puts on, you see him put on the helmet, but not the <laughs> the jetpack, which clearly would take several minutes of coordination to get it on properly. Right, and, and he, so he's trying to get off the roof of a mansion. I always thought, like, wouldn't a rope work just as well? Yeah. Just kind of have a rope. But he flies out over the mansion and then lands in the street next to his Aston Martin and then makes his getaway, conveniently stowing the jetpack into the trunk of the Aston Martin first. <laughs> uh, so that was pretty exciting. And then, of course, there's the Rocketeer. I a, never saw it. Uh, it's actually a very underrated, fun, pulpy kind of movie. The Rocketeer mm-hmm. is based off a comic book series that came out in the 1980s that was meant as a tribute to the old science fiction serials of the 30s and 40s. So it was it, the Rocketeer itself doesn't date all the way back there. That is when it's set. It's set in the 30s. But the actual comic book came out in the 80s and then the the, the movie came out in the 90s. And um, again, has a superhero who uses a, a rocket pack to fly around. Although this rocket pack is phenomenal because it apparently has a nearly infinite supply of fuel. <laughs> so those are the kind of the pop culture ones that I think about. I mean, there are, obviously there are other ones as well, but those are the big ones that jump out at me. So we've seen all of this. We know people have thought about it. What are some of the reasons why jetpacks aren't just all over the place? And one of the big ones is that, well, it's just because the way people are. We're not aerodynamic. Yeah, we don't have wings. Yeah, we don't generate lift. And we're pretty dense. Yeah, some, some denser than, than others, others yeah. but yes, uh, all of us, even the lighter side, are pretty dense relatively. Yeah, and uh, so in order for us to fly, we have to be we have to use something that's going to generate enough lift to counteract the the weight 
that we have, right? We have to be able to generate more upward thrust than we have uh, weight. But there's a problem here because it doesn't just have to counteract your weight and the Earth's gravity tugging down on you. It has to counteract its own weight on top of your weight. Exactly. So whatever jetpack, like if I weigh, you know, 180 pounds, and I've got a jetpack on that has 180 pounds thrust. Well, does that if if that is the total weight it has, I'm not going to be getting off the ground. You're just going to burn your shoes. Yeah, the jetpack is not is going to be. It's you know that weight's going to add to it. And plus, then you have the fuel, right? The fuel's going to add weight. And in fact, the longer you want to fly, the more fuel you have to carry. But the more fuel you carry, the heavier your jetpack is, and thus it places more limitations. This is the same sort of issue we run into when we talk about space. The idea that the the weight of stuff that we're trying to send up into space matters because that requires more fuel. And the more fuel you add, the more weight you have to the overall space delivery package. These are big issues. Also, depending on the type of fuel, um, it could be fairly dangerous. Not all rocket fuel is, uh, you know, friendly stuff. Well, I mean, we we have seen tragic cases where rockets explode. Um and it depends on what kind of fuel you use. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, there are some fuels that are much safer than others and I think typically when you're designing a jetpack, you're going to try to tend towards the safest kind of fuel you can use, but this puts limitations on your design. Right. And if you're looking at a lot of the jetpacks that have come out, specifically the ones that follow one particular design, uh, the limits on flight times are pretty, pretty rough. I mean, we're talking like 30 seconds of flight. Yeah. And uh, and a lot of the things I read talked about how you need to have about 10 seconds of that to determine how to land safely. So really, you've got 20 seconds of flying time followed by 10 seconds of, oh, I need to find a place to set down so I don't you know, injure myself. Um, at any rate, those are some of the problems. Another one is just that jetpacks are not quiet. Nope. And that's, you know, it's one thing if you are a person sh- demonstrating a technology and you've got a big group of people around watching you fly through the air. It's another if you want to suggest this as an actual mass produced means of travel. Travel. Right. If you're imagining this city of the future where everybody walks out the front door in the morning, puts on a backpack and then jets off to work. Yeah. This is going to be an incredibly noisy city. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are rockets or jets. They are not quiet devices. And uh, if you watch the footage of these old like tests of jetpacks, various jetpacks, you see a lot of people putting their fingers in their ears because it was it was loud. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just imagine a city full of people doing that. First of all, the skies would just be roaring constantly, which would be kind of t- uh, tedious, I would think. There would have to be some kind of citywide service also that you call up every time a jetpack flyer crashes on your lawn. <laughs> do, do you get them to come collect the corpse or what do you do? I think you have your corpse-pushing robots just push them out to the curb, right? Oh, okay. I mean, we're talking about the amazing future. Everyone's going to have a corpse-pushing robot. I, I, I can buy that. Okay. That was a little little dark, but hey, <laughs> it's the holidays. That's kind of the mindset we're in. Okay, I've got but, another big question yeah, about this, though. Sure. Everybody says they want one. Yeah. But is anybody actually going to pay what it would cost to make these? I think there... There's going to always be a very small market for these, but that's the thing. It's going to be a small market. I don't think it's ever going to get to a point where it's going to require mass production, which means the costs are never going to come down. So the price tag of these things is going to be very high. So the people who can afford them are going to be few in number. Right. It seems like people are imagining jetpacks as a kind of transportation alternative. So instead of taking the subway or your car – you take a jetpack. What seems more likely to me is that even as jetpacks become more viable at the consumer level, they're still still going to be basically a very expensive recreational device. Yeah, not that you can a only use transportation briefly. alternative. Right, because you know you can't. You know, we have such hard limitations on how much fuel you can carry, how far you can travel. That. Uh, with only a couple of exceptions of some proposals that would allow you to travel further but would be restrictive in other ways, it just wouldn't be practical. 
So without the those practical uses, there's not the funding necessary to go into research and development. Beyond that, there's not enough interest to create a, uh, a an industry around it. So, yeah, you've got the – I will constantly have people say, wouldn't jetpacks be cool? And, yeah, but cool isn't a good enough an, uh, reason to, to actually make them. It's kind of like lightsabers, actually, which we talked about recently. It seems really cool, but then can you really think of anything a lightsaber can do that you can't do with something else that's easier to make? Right. Now, that hasn't stopped us from actually making working jetpacks, which is different from lightsabers. If you remember our lightsaber episode, we essentially said – we can't figure out how this would ever become a real thing. And then on top of that, we couldn't think of a, a practical application for it apart from uh, Lauren's suggestion that it would allow us to both slice and toast bagels at the same time. Um, <laughs> so jetpacks, however, we've actually got several examples of those being made. And uh, some of them are just, uh, you know, concepts or whatever that were floated out there. No pun intended. But uh, I just had a, a collection of some of the fun ones that I thought I'd talk about. And one that is not so f- so fun, but is so crazy that I had to include it. Uh, did you read all of these yet, Joe? Well, are you talking about the kidnapping? Yeah, the, you read that one? Okay, just we'll save it. Yeah, Okay, but it's crazy. let's back up to 1928. All right, August 1928. That's when Frank R. Paul illustrated the cover of Amazing Stories. And it shows a guy wearing a jetpack. He's flying over a lady. Waving to the lady, ladies waving. Hi, Mr. Jetpack Man. Uh, and uh, it's one of those early depictions, like one of the earliest ones that I've seen of this idea of, of a jetpack that would allow people to travel um, on their own, as you were saying, Joe. In 1945, this is a sort of legendary thing. You have the Himmelstummer. Uh, the Himmelstummer was the Sky Stormer Pack that was supposedly developed by the Nazis during World War II. And it was supposed to be two pulse jet tubes based off of the rocketry that the Nazis were working on at the time. One mounted to the back of a soldier that would allow for thrust and one that would be on the front of the soldier. So that would be used for steering. Uh, And this was meant to allow soldiers to jump over obstacles. This sounds like one of those stories I mean, is there any evidence that this actually existed? Uh, there was, there was at least some. I mean, I, there are people out there who would who would at least know definitively if elements of this story are true, because there are no photographs that uh, have have survived. Assuming this thing really did exist, there are no examples of the thing that I know of. Supposedly, uh, Bell got hold of the company. You mean Bell Labs? Bell, yeah, Bell Aerospace Labs. Bell, yeah. Yeah, they they got hold of one of these, um, supposedly. Uh, but again, um, unless someone there knows definitively whether that happened or not, it's kind of in the realm of legend. There are illustrations, but the illustrations are illustrations. They're not photographs. So, yeah. uh, however, it could be said that the idea had been proposed whether it was ever actually built in any sort of prototype, I don't know. Then you have the Hiller VZ-1. Did you see a picture of one of these? No, I didn't. It, all right, just imagine like a, a little round platform. Mm-hmm. It's got a railing that goes all the way around. Wait a second. Yes, I did see this. Yeah. The, 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 uh, the flying platform. Yeah. It's a flying platform. It's actually a ducted fan. So it's a ducted fan. It's got a propeller inside it that rotates. That's what generates the thrust. <clears throat> it's like as if you could stand at the top of a guard tower. Yeah. Uh, but that guard tower could raise itself up into the sky and come back down at will. Yeah. And uh, it was built in the 1950s, early 1950s. And again, not an actual jetpack, more of a flying platform. And you would steer it by shifting your weight. In hmm. fact, there, I, I watched a, a film of this. So, well, video on YouTube, but it was converted from a film where you see the guy like kind of herky jerky making this thing move to specific locations. Um, and it was a five foot fiberglass round wing. That was the ducted fan part that you stood on top of. Um, and had twin counter-rotating coaxial propellers inside this ducted fan. So the fan part would be under your feet and mm-hmm. generating the thrust that would allow you to go up into the air. 
Uh, but it was somewhat limited. It was never, it never received full funding, so it never went into any kind of production. I think they built six of them, and at least one of them is on display in a museum right now. I can't, well, you control it by shifting your weight. Yeah. So it's like the segue of flying vehicles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's lean forward and that's where you're going to go. Lean forward too far and whew, bad news. Then you had the uh, Theocol Jump Belts. This was also developed in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Now, these weren't really jetpacks. They were meant kind of like the the uh, Himmelstürmer, uh, the ones. They were meant uh, to help a, help a soldier, like, leap over something. Yeah, or run really fast for a short time. Uh, and it, the company had developed solid fuel rockets, including rockets that we would use in early space program projects like Gemini, Gemini and Mercury. Almost a Gemini. So, well, that's how a lot of astronauts say it. They call it the Gemini Project. Really? I'm, yeah. Gemini so, Cricket. Yeah, Gemini Cricket and the Gemini Project. All right. So then the jump belt also had the nickname Grasshopper. Uh, again, it wasn't funded beyond some early prototypes faded away. Uh, for one thing, that loud noise problem, that becomes a real issue in military applications because obviously you don't want to give away your position to the enemy. Of course. And if you're wearing a jet strapped to you or a rocket, you're going to be making some noise. Yeah, and you're not hard to find. No. So then you've got Wendell Moore of Bell Aerosystems. And this is really where we start looking into jetpacks seriously. Uh, Wendell Moore created the Bell Rocket Belt, which used hydrogen peroxide as rocket fuel. And that was useful because it wasn't explosive uh, and thus was safe for a jetpack wearer to carry around. So you had to use kind of a chemical reaction to get the uh, propellant to shoot out. Yeah. So it's the 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 device was like a um, imagine a three tank backpack. Mm-hmm. All right. The tanks on the left and the right have 90 percent solution of hydrogen peroxide in them. The tank in the center has nitrogen gas in it. Not not liquid nitrogen, nitrogen gas, mm-hmm. the nitrogen gas pushes that that mixture of hydrogen peroxide through a catalyst. And the catalyst makes this chemical reaction happen where you end up getting steam, so you get water, and you get oxygen, uh, also heat, obviously. And that's what the the steam is what would provide that thrust through it, it escapes through nozzles. And the nozzles are what allow you to get the thrust that would counteract your weight and you could fly up into the air. Uh, so it... it it worked. He built this thing. He actually tested it himself quite a few times uh, on tethered flights. And uh, the design he made had a flight time limit of about 21 seconds. Uh, now, the first successful untethered test flight of the Bell rocket belt was in April of 1961 and was piloted by Harold Graham. What had happened was a Moore had injured his knee and knew that he would not be able to do the untethered test flight, although it upset him greatly. So he got Harold uh, Graham to do it. This flight lasted 14 seconds um, and hit a top speed of six miles per hour and traveled 35 feet untethered. So, I'm not going to knock it. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm thinking that if I were this test pilot, my thought would be, holy crap, holy crap, holy crap, holy crap, holy crap. Oh, thank goodness. Like that would be essentially the way my thought process. I wouldn't be worried about how far I was going. <laughs> I'd be thinking my feet are no longer on the ground and I've got a rocket strapped to my back. Yeah. Um, so a public demonstration went a little bit uh, was a little bit more spectacular. Graham flew for just 10 seconds, but he flew over a truck, uh, hit a altitude of about 15 feet traveled 150 feet in distance at about 10 miles per hour. And as they were testing this out, they figured out that thing I was talking about, how it takes about 10 seconds to make sure that you can land safely. So if your full flight time is 21 seconds and 10 seconds of that needs to be taken up with you figuring out where to land, mm-hmm. you have very, you got a real limit on how far you can go and how high you could go safely anyway. Um, they actually incorporated a device into this this jet pack, this this rocket belt, uh, in which a little uh, speaker would start beeping when you had 10 seconds of fuel left. It would be inside the pilot's helmet. And I remember, I think it was, um, I want to say it was The Verge that wrote this whole great history. There are a lot of 
of great histories about jetpacks out there online. The Verge has a fun one where they said, yeah, I can only imagine that you've got a rocket strapped to your back. You're flying through the air. You're trying to figure out how to land. And meanwhile, your your helmet is beeping in your ear. <laughs> like, like there's got to be a, a better way of doing this in a low stress and uh, kind of approach. You have. Nine seconds until death. <laughs> right. <laughs> so one of the test pilots for this Bell rocket belt, his name was uh, is Bill Souter. He actually, if I am not mistaken, flew a jetpack into the Olympic opening ceremonies in 1984, didn't he? He did. Yeah. He also flew the jetpack or was one of the two pilots who flew the jetpack in Thunderball. Wow. Yeah. The other one was uh, Gordon Yeager. So they acted as sort of uh, stunt pilots for Sean Connery. So that's kind of cool, too. And Bill Souter actually has has tested lots of these kind of devices. Apparently, he got a real uh, real taste for it. And, you know, the story is that he was 19 years old and he went to his next door neighbor to see if he could get a job. <laughs> his next door neighbor had a jetpack was Wendell Moore. Well, are you serious? Yeah. Wow. And, and said, well, you could test some of this stuff and he said okay 19 years old and then <laughs> that's how he got started that's amazing yeah isn't it kind of cool so 1961 we got another uh, uh, interesting entry here Robert Corder test flies a jet flying belt now this was also one that Wendell Moore worked on before he passed away he passed away in 1969 uh, this flying belt had a WR-19 fan jet engine from Williams International. So this was actually a jetpack. And if you look at a picture of this, it looks like a guy with a jet engine strapped to his back and that, and with a couple of handles coming out, and that's it. I mean, it looks like he's just wearing a jet engine. Um, so less like a jetpack like Boba Fett and more like, all right, imagine taking a jet engine off an aircraft and strapping it to someone. That's kind of what this looks like. We've all done that at one time or another. You know, we've all had our, we all have our pasts. So here comes the crazy story. And this, this is a dark, crazy story that we don't even have all the information on, but it was one that I thought I needed to include because it was just so bizarre. In 1992, Brad Barker partners with two guys, Joe Wright and Larry Stanley, to build a new rocket belt based off of Wendell Moore's design. But this one was supposed to have lighter components. It's supposed to have greater fuel capacity. So it was supposed to allow for longer flying times than the previous ones. So they even got Bill Souter to come in and test fly the model they built. They call it the RB2000. Now, here's where the story gets weird. Barker and Stanley had some sort of disagreement. Uh, one story I read was that Stanley thought that Barker and Wright were uh, were conspiring to essentially steal money because Stanley was the guy who fronted most of the money for the development of this jetpack. And the argument got heated, and Barker at one point grabbed a rubber mallet and started hitting Stanley with it. Uh, so Stanley pressed charges. Barker was arrested for assault. He got two years probation. Uh, Stanley won ownership of the RB2000 rocket belt. So he goes to claim the device from Barker's auto shop and it's not there. And neither is Barker. What? Yeah. So then later, th this is taking over course over years, by the way. Stanley then goes to track down Joe Wright, the other partner. Joe Wright turns up dead, beaten so badly they had to identify him from his dental records. Wow. Yeah. No unsolved they the police said we don't have enough information to to uh to to charge any suspect with this crime uh so stanley finally finds barker and takes him to court and wins a 10 million dollar reward from the judge but barker refuses to pay so stanley allegedly grabs barker shoves him in a box and holds him for eight days until barker manages to escape uh Police then arrested Stanley on kidnapping charges. He was sentenced to life in prison, got, I think, eight years instead. Uh, and then the kicker of this is the RB2000 jetpack itself is lost. No one knows where it is, or at Wait. least no one's saying. Did anybody ever actually see it? I'm wondering, did Bill it Suter exist? Bill Souter did. He, he, he oh, okay. flew it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
So, yeah, really weird story. And I tried to follow up on this to see what other information I could find, but it was pretty much that. And it was just crazy. I, I, the more I read about it, the more I thought, this needs to be a movie. Someone needs to make a movie yeah. about this story because it's kind of it's like a, a Coen Brothers kind of story about, really a, about a jetpack gone wrong. No, I could totally see the Coen Brothers doing this. But at any rate, let's talk about some more updated jetpacks. Uh, you know, that was that was kind of a look back through the history of it. But we've actually got some examples we can point to today. Yeah, well. A lot of what we've been talking about has been terrestrial. Right. Like you're standing on the surface of the earth and you want to fly, you know, because you think that'd be cool. Yeah. <laughs> so you launch off the ground, yeah. you fly for 11 seconds or whatever it is, <laughs> and, and then, then, you, then, you, land. then you get the message, you need to land immediately. Yeah. You do. And it's the thrill of the lifetime. Right. But what about in space where we really do have back-mounted propulsion systems that are very important for things that, for example, when astronauts are working outside the International Space Station. Yeah. What's interesting to me about this is how infrequently they were used, because Mm -hmm. I remember seeing like, again, in movies, even in Gravity, uh, the George Clooney character has a, a backpack that allows him to jet around, which he does like in a very cavalier style <laughs> to the point where you're thinking you're wasting a lot of resources, buddy. Mm-hmm. At any rate, um, they actually weren't used that frequently, but they did come in very handy. They were created for extravehicular activities or EVAs, the spacewalks, that kind of thing. And an early one was the manned maneuvering unit or MMU. It was developed by NASA in the 1980s for the space shuttle missions, and it was a descendant of a program that the Air Force started called Astronaut Maneuvering Unit. It was something that they had built for uh, the Gemini program, but they never got a chance to actually use it. The one time they were going to test it, uh, the astronaut in charge was sweating so profusely just from working in the confines of the Gemini capsule that his uh, his helmet was fogging over, so they canceled the spacewalk. And that was going to be the test of the astronaut maneuvering unit. As it turns out, they never got a chance to test it. But the, that did end up evolving more or less into the MMU further down the road. So uh, it was used in only three space shuttle missions. It was, it was the only time they used it because NASA eventually determined that there were other means of either securing astronauts to whatever they were working to so they didn't have to worry about floating off into space uh, or they would um, use robotics, like a robotic arm, to move things into position rather than someone jetting out there. Yeah, referring to those alternative means, I think kind of like the James Bond example I gave earlier, this may be a situation where a rope is more useful than a jetpack. Yeah, exactly. Now, they did develop the Simplified Aid for EVA Rescue, or SAFER, which is kind of a slimmed-down version of the MMU. It's much smaller, has less fuel in it. It's really only there in the case of an emergency. So let's say that you've got an astronaut and their tether, for whatever reason, isn't secure. Uh, this would allow another astronaut to go retrieve the first one uh, before disaster, right? So it's they do have these, but they said this is weird because it's technology we've developed that we hope we never have to use. Yeah, you know, it's it's the thing that you make that you hope you never actually have to put into use. As for other terrestrial jetpacks, there are some other ones we can point to uh, with varying levels of success and funding. There's one that uh, a company called Jet Machines Extreme company, I should say, an organization, I guess. They created a project called the Jet Vest. And uh, they claimed it was going to be the world's smallest jet turbine flying belt. So this is actually a jet pack. Yeah. Not a rocket belt. Um, How long would it go? Three or four minutes. So mm-hmm. the idea being that it would be much more efficient than the hydrogen peroxide-based units. Um, they held a Kickstarter campaign in 2012 to try and raise $30,000 in funding. And here's the crazy thing. You would think... Jetpacks. People are going to donate millions. Yeah. I mean, you look at something like the Oculus Rift or the Pebble Watch and how many people funded that. And you would think, oh, well, Jetpack, clearly that had to blow the the $30,000 campaign goal out of the water. No, it didn't even hit $2,000. Now, that was 2012. Maybe if they had launched it 
a year later or in 2014, they might have met with different a different amount of success, but uh, it did not fund. And when I went to their website, they had not really updated it since then. It still had a link to that Kickstarter campaign. So hmm. not sure if they're still active or not. They have like a really, really bad fundraising video or something. No, it's okay. I mean, it was it was obviously guys who were enthusiasts and engineers, but you know they weren't necessarily uh, on camera hosts or anything. But it was a, a, a fairly succinct description of what they were trying to accomplish and what you know how they had even broken out where the money was going to go. Like they said, yeah. you know, here's specifically what we want that money for. Um, because we've been, this project so far has been coming directly from our pockets and we can't afford to keep going without extra money. I guess sometimes it's just hard to understand why some projects succeed. Take and off and some, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it may have just been that this was one of those that didn't get widely enough spread yeah. for people to support it. Or it could be that, again, people say they want jetpacks, but when it comes down to putting their money on the line, they don't really want them. Right. Well, there are still several companies that do make jetpacks, some of which you can actually purchase from, uh, that include TAM, TAM. Uh, there's also one called GoFast, and there's uh, <laughs> one called Thunderbolt Aerosystems, uh, among others. Uh, and we mentioned uh, Eves Rossi, who uh, used his wing jetpack in 2006. He leapt out of a hot air balloon, went into free fall, started up his engines, and flew for more than six minutes before activating his parachute to land. Uh, but he says he doesn't have any plans to market the jetpack. He did say he was planning on testing it several more times, but you know, <laughs> so it's kind of like, like the Iron Man suit. Yeah, it's not like, for sale. Right. This one's for me. <laughs> you know, um, there's also the Martin jetpack, which is marketed as, quote, the world's first practical jetpack. Uh huh. It's a ducted fan approach. So this goes back to oh, that, okay. that platform I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Same sort of thing. It uses ducted fans and propellers to generate the thrust, a pair of them in this case. And, um, it's got a range of 30 kilometers or 30 minutes flight time, and wow. it runs on gasoline as fuel. So, because you're you're powering a fan, you're not you're not generating thrust using a, a rocket fuel or anything like that. Um, of course, gasoline obviously has its own uh, safety issues, but still. And then there is another type of jetpack that we wanted to talk about, and you did a lot of the research on this. This was the JetLev Flyer, which, believe it or not, is a water-powered jetpack. Yeah, if you've ever been to one of those like super popular water resort destinations, you may have seen someone using one of these. I've I, seen. I've obviously never been to one of these. You need to go to Cancun. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I guess if a jet ski is a jet, this in some sense really is a jet pack. It's yeah. not, certainly not a rocket. Okay. So picture this. You put on a bathing suit and your sunscreen, your pool shoes, and yeah. you get your sunglasses with the little dingle dangle around your neck so yeah, they don't yeah. fall out down in the water. I'm with you so far. You strap on a backpack. Okay. It's got kind of a Y shaped pipe on your back going up behind your head. And sort of following the contours of your shoulders. And then the ends of the two arms of that Y shape turn downward toward your feet with two nozzles that spray water at an enormous rate. And it looks basically like you've got two fire hoses strapped to your back spraying toward the ground. Okay. And they spray enough water with enough force to lift your body up off of the surface of the water there is a disclaimer in the promo <laughs> video I watched that said uh, every time it showed somebody like landing on a dock or getting off of a dock, it said dock takeoff and landing are high risk maneuvers. Expert training required. Yeah, I think I would only trust myself to rise up out of the water and crash back into it. Um, I looked into this a little bit. There were some mm -hmm. other interesting things in it. Like they, you know, the, the thrust control is one thing. The thrust is what determines how high up you're going to go. Yeah. Uh, Obviously, you're you're limited because this is tethered. It's a tethered system. The right. the water is coming from the body of water you are in. Right. Well, so it is not just uh, so it has a hose coming out the yeah. back of it, and the hose doesn't just go into the water. It attaches to a large machine right. that travels around in the water below you. Yeah, the machine floats on top of the water, and it is what uh, it provides the suction for the water and the. The, the power for the thrust. In other words, all the, the heavy parts, the engine and, and things like that are located on the surface of the water, which that means 
the jet pack itself doesn't have to develop, have to provide that kind of thrust to counteract that weight. That weight is already taken care of. It's just floating on the water below you. So it has an advantage over other jet packs. It doesn't have to carry its engine with it. Uh, now you can't obviously fly beyond the length of that hose from the platform, nor would you really want to, I don't think, <laughs> but, uh, but it is, it does allow you to actually fly over the surface of the water. Um, it's kind of cool. Uh, you know, I've, I've looked at it online. I've watched a lot of videos of people using this stuff and I keep thinking I would, I, I, I want to do this, but I have a feeling I lack the basic balance to be able to do it without becoming a hilarious YouTube video. <laughs> <laughs> well, just don't try any of those dock takeoff or landing maneuvers. I think I'd be more worried about taking a header right into <laughs> like someone else's boat or something. Right, or you accidentally go into shallow waters and yeah. land up on the shore. Yeah. So I think it has about a 10-meter maximum height. Mm-hmm. And... Based on their website, it looked like you could also you could buy sort of a jetpack add-on kit for your jet ski, for your existing jet ski that would turn your jet ski into the base of a jetpack. Pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, according to their marketing materials, quote, you don't only buy a jetpack add-on kit, you will buy a new way of happiness. <laughs> I'm so glad because all my old ways of happiness are just so passe. Uh, but yeah, no, this was a fun thing to talk about. And, and, you know, I think ultimately we have to go back to those early challenges and talk about how jetpacks, while they are a cool idea and they definitely represent this, this notion of freedom and exhilaration that is very compelling. The jetpacks themselves are not compelling enough to overcome the massive challenges that lie between them and making it a commonplace reality for for the average person. Yeah, I think there is just not enough real actual consumer demand for this to to make them all they could be. Yeah. That's the bottom line. There's not enough reason to invest in developing consumer jetpacks. Not even <laughs> getting to the issue of safety. Right. Which I mean, if everybody really did have jetpacks, I wouldn't want to live in that place. Yeah, I shared a video from the British comedy series, That Mitchell and Webb Look, which is a, a sketch comedy show. And one of the sketches they did was a a news reporter covering the the successful launch of a jetpack company. And through the entire interview, you just hear and see people flying by out of control, like just screaming as they <laughs> careen around. And I think, yeah, you know, that's pretty much how I imagine. Keep in mind that if you ever watch any of these videos of people using actual jetpacks, essentially they take off from a standing position, remain in that standing position as they go up or down, move forward or left or right. So you're just you're standing up. You're never in that Superman prone position, you know, where you can fly uh, horizontally over the ground. You're, well, you know, you'd need wings to do that. Yeah, you? you would have to have something to counteract. Or I guess you, you could know. do it very briefly. Right. You would start falling immediately because you don't generate lift yeah. that way. You know, you would have to. So in order for you to stay up, you have to have the nozzles pointing back down toward the ground. And uh, you're not moving that quickly. You're not moving very far. You can't go that high, at least not without really risking some possible major problems. So, yeah, there, <laughs> there are a lot of um, yeah. that's the that's the little tagline on the commercial possible major, major problems. problems. I could say injury or death, I guess. Uh, and ultimately, you never know when your pursuit of a jetpack is going to get you beaten around the head with a rubber mallet. I mean, it's. Ugh. It's got a lot of dangers associated with it, some that you wouldn't even imagine at first. Well, where I can say that jetpacks do seem to be very useful is going to be in space travel, largely. Yeah. I can see them uh, not just for EVA on the ISS, like in case your tether comes unhooked, mm. you can jet back to the to the airlock, but also, say, on the surface of other planets. I can see that, especially maybe planets or asteroids that have reduced gravity, where there you could get more bang for your buck in terms of the fuel you're carrying. Well, sure, especially if you're thinking about you're you're working within the confines of a spacesuit of some sort, which is already going to restrict your ability to move freely. Mm-hmm. So it may mean that you need something like that in order for you to, to navigate the landscape around you. So, yeah, I could see that being a, a useful, uh, you know, a useful tool in those situations, just not 
your average Joe like you <laughs> heading for work. If I see you head to the office wearing a jetpack, I'm going to be both impressed and terrified. So just something for you to keep in mind you know, if you want to. I would only come to work with one of those water jetpacks. <laughs> just <laughs> dragging behind Dragging a pool meters, behind me, an above-ground pool on a trailer. Ten behind you is just one of those things just dragging on the ground. Just <laughs> You can hear it clattering up the steps. Yeah, that might not be the best uh, best use of your time and resources, but who am I to say? So, guys, that wraps up this episode of Forward Thinking. If you have any suggestions for future topics, let us know. Send us an email. Our address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Or drop us a line on Google+, Twitter, or Facebook. At Google+, and Twitter, we are FW Thinking. Just search FW Thinking in Facebook. We'll pop right up. Leave us a message, and you'll hear from us again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my! Look at that! He is... And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm. The Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. Dot com slash compatibility.